Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2, verse 11. And we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 3, verse 26. It's on page 360. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair right in front of you. Uh, It's a brown Bible. If you look on page 360, you'll find the book of Job. It's spelled like the word job. And um, as you turn there, we're going to be in chapter 2. That's the big number, and 11 is a small number. That's the verse number. Job 2, 11. Hear then the words... Of the living God. Now, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air. And on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and and nights, but no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. After this, Job began to speak and cursed the day he was born. Chapter 3, verse 2 He said, May the day I was born perish, and the night when they said, A boy is conceived. If only that day had turned to darkness. May God above not care about it or light shine on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it and a cloud settle over it. May an eclipse of the sun terrify it. If only darkness had taken that night away, may it not appear among the days of the year or be listed on the calendar. Yes, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout be heard in it. Let those who curse certain days cast a spell on it. Those who are skilled in rousing Leviathan, may its morning stars grow dark. May it wait for daylight but have none. May it not see the breaking of the dawn. For that night did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide sorrow from my eyes. Why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me, and why were there breasts for me to nurse? Now I would certainly be lying down in peace. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruined cities for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a miscarried child, like infants who never see daylight? There the wicked cease to make, make trouble, and there the weary find rest. The captives are completely at ease. They do not hear the voice of their oppressor. Both small and great are there. And the slave is set free from his master. Why is light given to one burdened with grief? And life to those whose existence is bitter. Who wait for death, but it does not come. And search for it more than for hidden treasure. Who are filled with much joy and are glad when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? I sigh when food is put before me, and my groans pour out like water. For the thing I feared, the thing I feared has overtaken me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I cannot relax or be still. 
I have no rest, for trouble comes. Father, we've sung our prayer. Open our eyes that we may see. Spirit, illumine us, enlighten us. Open our ears that we might hear your voice and your truth and may it dispel all cloudiness and the lies, the lies of Satan, the lies of this world, the lies that we tell ourselves. May your truth break on these lies like a hammer on an anvil. We pray, Father, that you would take every thought of ours captive to Christ for we want to please him with our thoughts, our words, our actions. We want to suffer well. And so we need your supernatural help for that. And so we look to your son, our Lord Jesus, who is a great savior. And we rest in him now. So may you come by your spirit and lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There have been many tragedies. There have always been tragedies in this world, but recently there have been a few who, that hit our, our nation. Some of you might have heard of Washington State, the mall, where five people were shot and killed at Macy's. It was that Friday night? They were looking for him all day Saturday and found the killer Saturday morning. There have been some recent videos online and on the news about um, people killed by officers, by police officers. And there have been subsequently riots, at least in Charlotte. There have been riots there. And even in the riots, one protester was shot and killed there, at least one death, and many more crimes committed there. And there's grief everywhere about this. I just opened my website browser this morning and found something local that was really bad news that wasn't too far from here. And I just thought, this just keeps on piling on. Now, Christians are not surprised by sin and tragedy. We, of all people, understand the beginning of the story, that when God made this world, he made it very good. The creation was good. Adam was good. Eve was good. Life was good. There was no sin. There was no evil. There was no tragedy. There was no pain. There was no sorrow. There was not a tear shed. But we also know the beginning of the story that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, And with that, sin entered into the world, and the curse entered the world. And ever since then, this world has been broken. It has been ravaged by sin and destruction and deterioration and decay. This is a broken and cursed world. Romans 8.18 says that the the creation is groaning like like a mother in labor, in childbirth labor. Groaning, waiting for the final arrival. So we not only know the beginning of the story, we also know the end of the story, don't we? And isn't it good news for those in Christ? Amen. We know that Christ will come, that we will receive glorified bodies, and that this earth will be renewed. This will be a glorified earth, and we will reign with him on this earth forever and ever and ever. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sin, no more death, no more decay, just joy and gladness, increasing more and more forever and ever, world without end. For those who are in Christ, there is also the lake of fire where God's judgment is burning and punishing and executing forever those who have not repented from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. But we know that in the end, justice will be seen to be done. All the injustice, all the wrongs, all the brokenness, it will not only be fixed, 
It'll be fixed to the point that Christians will be glad it happened. And they wouldn't want to change the wise plan of God. Even though now, in the middle of it, we feel the pain. And it's hard to affirm the goodness of it. You know, you don't need to be a Christian to know that there's pain in the world. R.E.M., you might have heard of that band. I don't know if they're Christian. I'm going to assume they're not. But they wrote the song, Everybody Hurts. And I'm going to quote the whole song to you. I just listened to it last night, so sorry if, if I... Um, well, yeah, if, if I do injustice to you, I'm not singing it, but... Um, when your day is long... You're welcome. When your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone, when you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. Don't let yourself go because everybody cries. And everybody hurts sometimes. Sometimes everything is wrong. Now it's time to sing along. When your day is night alone, hold on, hold on. If you feel like letting go, hold on. If you think you've had too much of this life, well... Hang on. Everybody hurts. Take, com- take comfort in your friends. Everybody hurts. Don't throw your hand. Oh, no. Don't throw your hand. If you feel like you're alone, no, 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 you are not alone. If you're on your own in this life, the days and nights are long when you think you've had too much of this life to hang on. Well, everybody hurts sometimes. Everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes and everybody hurts sometimes. So hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Everybody hurts. Everybody hurts. When suffering hits home and hits hard, really hard, we don't know how to face God or communicate to each other in the midst of the suffering. We're unprepared. And often we're not just unprepared, we're scared, actually. It's scary. The last thing we want to do when we're suffering as Christians is dishonor God. The last thing we want to do is hear that there's some deal going on in heaven and Satan was right and God was wrong about us, right? We, we don't want Satan to have the pleasure of victory. <clears throat> and so it's scary because suffering hurts. Life is really, really hard. Amen. And to, to not curse God, to not give in to find ways to communicate the pain and the suffering without displeasing the Lord. You get nerve-wracking racking a little bit. To, to, how do I do this? What do I say? Not only are we unprepared to suffer and scared of failing, we're also unprepared to help other people who are suffering. We don't know what to say. We're at a loss for words often. And so God gives us Job chapter 3. He gives us this chapter as a gift. Chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, he gives us a gift. So here's the main idea. As we feel Job's pain in the midst of his suffering, we learn how to lament when we face our suffering. Okay? As we, as we feel Job's pain through his words, in his suffering, we learn how to lament in our pain when our day of suffering comes or today because our day of suffering is here. And make no mistake, if you're young and relatively healthy, you're temporarily healthy. It's temporary. It is. And your health will fail, and you will die, and you will have your day of suffering unless the Lord quickly takes you, which is also possible, a possible mercy. Okay, so number one, we'll look at Job's lament. And number two, we'll learn from Job's lament. If you're taking notes, simple outline, right? Look at Job's lament. Number two, 
learn from Job's lament. So we'll look at three things about Job's lament and then four lessons to learn from Job's lament. So first of all, let's look at his lament. Three, or no, I'm sorry, four, four things here about Job's lament as we just literally walk through the text. So chapter 2, verse 11 um, to 2, 13, we see that Job is sitting with his friends in silence, right? In, in verse 11 of chapter 2, he's there with his three fr- friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We'll, we'll introduce those guys next week as we, we introduce their long conversation. But he has his friends. These are not random friends, Think of your five closest friends, and three of them show up. Okay, these are not strangers. These are not acquaintances. These aren't church members you know because you've seen them sort of on Sunday, but you don't really know them that well. These are your three closest friends, three of your five closest friends, who come to see you because you're hurting, because they hear about the tragedy in your family, that your ten children have died all in one day. This is Job 1 and 2. They hear that your servants have all been killed except for four of them. They hear that your wealth has been stolen. And they hear that your health has failed and you have lost weight and you are depressed and you have boils from the top of your head to the bottom of your, the sole of your foot. And you're in deep trouble. This is extraordinary, supernatural, coincidental, seemingly coincidental suffering extraordinary and so your three closest friends come and what do they do they mourn with him it says here that they could barely recognize him they go there to sympathize with him what good friends do just going to go there we're going to try to comfort him verse 12 they look from a distance they barely recognize him he's lost weight he shaved his head doesn't look the same he doesn't have that smile that lights up the room perhaps the joy that attracted to him as a friend originally gone just sitting there in dust with ripped clothes. They see him and they do what you would do if that was your close friend of many years. They wept. They just wept loudly. They tore their clothes, sign of mourning. Just a rip in the clothes, dust on their heads. You're miserable, we'll be miserable with you. We'll just sit here with you in misery. So they sat beside Job. And they did that for seven days, it says in verse 13. Seven days and seven nights, no one spoke a word because they saw his suffering was very intense. Now, if that was you and your Job at that point, though they're not saying anything, it's not that you're not hearing words, right? If you're sitting there and suffering, don't you hear your own thoughts? You start thinking, words start coming across your mind, and your, your thoughts start bouncing around in your mind in this echo chamber of what you think. And so Job is about to burst like a volcano in chapter 3 with his thoughts after seven days of silence. But for these seven days, Job is sitting quietly in pain with his thoughts. Remember, he's been uncomfortable for, for seven days. That's 168 hours. Not able to sleep, not able to rest, not able to stand or sit or lay down on any side. Can't get comfortable. As he's in these seven days of suffering, memories of his children, ten children who died... Doubtlessly crosses mind, remembers their first bike ride, their first horse ride perhaps. Growing up, some of them gotten married, thinking about the grandkids, different laughs, looking around and, and, and being reminded by a sunrise or a sunset about his time with one of his daughters or two of his sons when they had their father's son time. 
he'll have moments of relief in his pain, and then he'll burst back into overwhelming grief. Moments of relief, pain again, popping in and out throughout the day. Not only is he mourning his ten children's deaths, his servants, his employees, doubtless many of them his friends. You build, you, you work with some people for a long time, and you start to build friendships, right? You, you, if you lose a coworker who dies, it's not easy when they're close to you. When you lose all of them but four, that's tragic. That's overwhelming. So that had to wash over him as well. Maybe even a sense of responsibility to some degree. These were my employees, and now their kids are fatherless. And their wives are widows. Because they worked for me, and my wealth was stolen, and they were working and guarding my wealth, and they're the ones who were caught in the crossfire. It wasn't their fault I was rich. But now they're killed because of me. Man, the false guilt there, the misplaced shame. In World War I, there was a couple named Frederick and Maggie Smith in Australia who had seven sons in World War I. Six of them died in the war. One of them came home and died very soon after from an accident. Imagine having your seven sons and all of them being taken away. One over the course of the war and then one within five years after the war by an accident. And you're supposed to trust God. You're supposed to praise him still. It's supposed to be well with your soul. Job's health is failing. He's in constant, he has a constant burden now. His wife, his wife is losing her faith now. She doesn't think God is trustworthy and good. That's discouraging. That could even be more discouraging when you see your strong, godly wife succumb to wanting to curse God. Sitting in silence isn't helpful in some ways because the thoughts just rattle around and make it worse. Sometimes the internal pain is worse than the external pain. Actually, often it is. And so that's the first thing is, uh, of the fourth, is that Job, is sits in, he sits in silence with his friend. The second part of the story, or at least of this text, is chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And here we find that Job wishes he was never born. So now we're going to get into the lament of Job. And there's three things about his lament. First, he wishes he was never born. Then he wishes that he died when he was born. And then he wishes that he was dead right now. So I wish I was never born. Then... I wish when I was born, since I was, I wish I died then. And well, I didn't die then. I'm still alive now. I wish I was dead right now. And that's Job's prayer. One of the darkest chapters, maybe the darkest chapter, at least prayer of a whole chapter in, in, the, in the Bible. So what does Job curse here? Look at verse 1. After this, Job began to speak and he cursed what? What did he curse? The day he was born, the birth date. Now, we don't know how old Job is. He had 10 grown children. I'm going to just, for the sake of the conversation, if it was today, let's say he was 56 years old. So he might be saying, May June 18th, 1960, perish. May that day be cursed. Verse 3. May the day I was born perish. When they said, or and the night when they said, a boy is conceived. So he, he wants his birth date to be gone. Even the night when they found out they were pregnant. A boy has conceived. You're pregnant. Usually that's cause for celebration. The Bible does teach that life begins when? At what? At conception. 
Life begins at conception, so you have a human life there. And usually when someone gets pregnant, it's celebrated, at least among Christians. Well, that's even sadly failing today. We have a friend from another church who got pregnant recently, and parents were mad because it was their third child. You know, too many kids. Well, they're not Christian. The family wasn't Christian. I mean, the, the couple was, but the family wasn't. So you can understand there. But sadly, even among, among Christians, some people look at you having many kids, kids as if it's a curse. They haven't read Psalm 127, that children are a blessing from the Lord. But life begins at conception. Amen. And here Job wishes at conception that that day never, not only do I wish my birthday was gone, I wish the day I was conceived was gone. I wish that night was gone. Now, this is not an argument for abortion or infanticide. You can say, well, see, it's okay to wish that babies are gone. So again, Job is lamenting here. He's in pain. This is not an argument that you could use biblically to, to support abortion or infanticide, which partial birth abortion is part of. So he wishes it was gone, his birth date. Look at verse 4 through 6. In 4 through 6, he says, If only that day had turned to darkness, may God not care about it or, or light shine on it. God cares about every day because God has a plan with every day of life, right? And he's wishing, God, I wish you didn't care about that date. Let that date just, just don't care about that date. Just put darkness on that date. Black that date out. Verse 5, May darkness and gloom reclaim it and a cloud settle over it. May an eclipse of the sun terrify it. If only darkness had taken that night away. Let's make that Black Friday. Right? Not Black Friday of surplus of money, but, but a dark day, a cursed day. Look at verse 6, the end of verse 6. May it not appear of the days of the year or be listed in the calendar. Let's just take that day out of human history. Aren't there certain days you wish you could just take out of human history? Most recently, September 11th, 2001. Don't, don't, I mean, especially many in New York who've lost family members there. Don't they wish that if you could just black out one day or erase one day from history that doesn't happen? That's a good day to pick. Let that day be cursed. Because look at all the trouble it brought in this world. The sin and destruction it brought into this world. May that day be cursed. Job's not talking about September 11th, though. He's not talking about a tragedy in national proportion. He's talking about his own birth date because I was born on that day. May that day be cursed. Look at verses 8 and 9. Let those who curse certain days cast a spell on it, those who are skilled in rousing Leviathan. He's even asking for people who do witchcraft, perhaps, to cast the spell on a day. Do you remember Balaam in Numbers? Casting a spell on Israel. God, um, not God, Balak calls for Balaam to cast a curse on Israel so that Israel would not, would not um, fight against them or not win against them. And Balaam could not. He was a professional cursor, but he could not curse Israel. He could only bless them when he spoke. But Job is saying, yeah, get one of those guys. I need one of those guys to curse my birth date. Verse 9, may its morning stars grow dark. May it wait for daylight, but have none. May the, may the sun never have risen on that day. Just that day stopped from happening. May it wait for daylight, but have none. May it not see the breaking of the dawn. If only Superman was real, right? Superman, if you remember the first movie where he flew around the earth to return the rotation backwards and sort of rewind time. Yeah, if, if we could get someone like that, to, to, if God could turn back the clock and redo, redo the calendar, redo history, that'd be great. To make my day, not, to make me not born. I wish that could happen. Verse 10, why, why does he want his birth date to be canceled? Why does he want his birth date to not exist? Why does he curse the day of his birth? Verse 10 says why. 
Why? What happened on that day? For that day, for that night did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide sorrow from my eyes. Why does he want that day cursed? Because he was born on that day. And not only was he born on that day, who cares about that? Okay, so you're born. But that last part of verse 10 tells you that day did not hide what from his eyes? Trouble, Trouble or sorrow. If I was never born, I wouldn't be suffering right now. But I was born, so I am suffering right now. I wish I was never born. Job curses the day of his birth and he wishes he was never born. That's the first part of his lament. So that's the second thing. The third thing here, next part of his lament, not only does he wish he was never born, he wishes that he died at, on the day of his birth. Look at verses 11 through 19. Look at verse 11. Why was I not a stillborn? Why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? It would have been great to die then. Why did the knees receive me? And why, why was my mom there to nurse me? I wish she wasn't there. I wish, she, I wish there was no one there to nurse me and I would have just died of starvation. Now I would certainly be lying down in peace. Here's why. Because if I died as a baby on my first day, what would happen? Verse 13. I'd be lying down in peace. I'd be at rest. I wouldn't be alone. I'd be with king. Verse 14, with kings and counselors. In verse 15, I'd be with princes. I'd be with other people who've died and gone before me. He asked the question again in verse 16. Why was I not hidden like a miscarried child? Why, why wasn't a miscarriage in the womb? Forget the day of my birth. What about dying in the womb after already being conceived? Like the infant who never sees daylight. Today, he very well could have been wishing for an abortion for himself. Kill me in the womb. There, the, why? Why does he want to die? Why does he wish he would die when he was born? Verse 17. There the wicked cease to make trouble and the weary find rest. There's rest there for the weary. They're, they aren't weary there. There's no wicked people doing trouble in the place of the dead. They just rest. Verse 18. The captives are completely at ease. So it's a place of ease. And they do not hear the voice of their oppressor. There's no trouble. There's no criminals. There's no bullies. Verse 19, both small and great are there, and the slave is set free from his master. Everyone's equal in the place of the dead. It's great for Job to say, even as a man who's powerful. He wasn't corrupted by his power. We're all equal. Slave and free. Slave and master. We should all be equal. And that's, that's why the place of the dead is great. Because everyone is equal there. So Job wishes... That he died at birth. Now, Job is not giving us a theology of heaven and hell. You can say, Job, what about the lake of fire? What about burning forever under God's wrath? You want that? Job is talking poetically here of what it looks like. You know, when we, when we put people in the grave, we say, rest in peace. When you lay them down in the casket, it looks like they're resting. There's an imagery there of sleep. And so that's what Job's looking at. He's like, look. Look at that dead, that, that dead body. They're resting. They look so peaceful. Look at my body. Boils everywhere. Agony. So Job wishes that he died at birth. Not only that, last verses here, verses 20 to 26. Job wishes he could die now. Okay? I didn't die at birth. I'm 56, 66, 70 years old now. I wish I could die now. What does he, he says that in verse 20. Why is light given to one burdened with grief? And life to those whose existence is bitter. So light, you know, light is, it's a, it's a form of life here that you're able to see and live. 
So why was light given to me? And why is life given to me? My life is bitter. Why does God just take my life? Verse 21. So why, why is life given to me? Why is life given to those, not just me, but to everyone whose, life, whose existence is bitter? Everyone who waits for death, verse 21. But it does not come. They search for death more than, more than hidden treasure. And they're filled with much joy and they're glad when they reach the grave. Why am I not dead now? I'd be happy. There's so many people who would be happy to be dead right now. Why can't we do it? Why do you keep giving me life? Why do you keep giving me light? 23. Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? I don't even know what to do with my life anymore. You know, you have a clear ambition and direction for your life. You know your path. And then God hides the path and now you're confused. What am I supposed to do with my life now? My kids are gone. My wife is abandoning the faith. I could barely get comfortable for five seconds. Now what am I supposed to do with my life? Why am I still here? Just take me, Lord. Job is disoriented. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do. He doesn't know where he's supposed to go. Look at verse 23 again. He says, whom God has hedged in. Do you remember that word earlier in Job 1 and 2? Who used that word that, God, that Job was hedged in? Satan did in chapter 1. You know why Job doesn't curse you, God? Because you give him so many blessings and you have hedged him in with a hedge of protection. And now Job takes that. Now Job doesn't know the conversation there, but Job's idea is, not am I protected from suffering, like Satan says, I'm protected from escaping suffering. I'm trapped. I can't get out. I'm stuck in this life. I can't die. I sleep. I wake up the next morning. I'm still alive. I'm just waiting to die, but I'm not dead. I'm trapped in this body with life. I'm hedged in. And so Job, Job wishes he was dead. Now again, I need to say something about our culture today. This is not an argument for suicide. We'll talk about it a little bit in application. It's not even an argument for physician-assisted suicide or what is legally called in California, the End of Life Option Act. Have you heard of that? The End of Life Option Act, where if you have a terminal disease, you can legally ask for medication to kill yourself, murder yourself. That's what suicide is, self-murder. You might have heard of Brittany Maynard. She was the one who made it famous. She was a California resident, moved to Washington. Tragic story. You watched some of those videos I did yesterday. Just heart-wrenching. 29-year-old, just married, brain cancer, six months to live. She she said, if I live past six months, I'm going to take this medication. She did. She became an advocate for this act. It's called the Death with Dignity Act in Washington. Some people might find biblical justification here and say, see, Job wanted to die. He wished he never lived. Job is not asking, Job is not wanting to commit suicide. He's wanting God to take him in God's timing. In God's way. But he does want to die. He does want to escape from the pain. And he says so. Look at his experience. So he's just, in 20 through 23, he's just talking about, there's so many people who want to die, but we're all trapped. And then go to 24. I sigh when food is put before me, and my groans pour out like water. For the thing I feared has overtaken me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. So I can't eat in verse 24. I groan all the time. And then verse 25 is what scares me. 
Because verse 25 says, my worst nightmare has what? Has become a reality. I wake up the next morning and it's not a dream. You've had nightmares, right? You've had some really bad nightmares, real nightmares. I mean, like in your, in your dreams. And you wake up and you're relieved, right? Oh, praise God, that was a dream. Praise God, that's not reality. And then, but for Job, there is no waking up from this. It's real. His children are dead. His servants are dead. His wealth is gone. His health is gone. His worst fears have been realized. I don't know what your worst fears are. I, I listed some of mine here. It's not worth the time to take now. But that would, when I think about my worst fears, I think, yeah, that would make me want to die. I don't know why I'd want to live after those things. Verse 26, Job says, I cannot relax or be still. I have no rest, for trouble comes. Here it is. I, I can't rest. I can't relax. I can't be still. I can't get relief. That's Job's lot. One Christian writer wrote this. Sometimes my faith is shaken when my dreams are shattered. I wonder where God is in the midst of my suffering. I cannot sense his presence. I feel alone and afraid. My faith wavers. I question what I have long believed. I wonder what is real, especially when my experience doesn't match my expectations. This wavering deeply troubles me. I have tasted God's goodness, enjoyed close fellowship with him, Rested in his tender care. I have known both his power and his love. Yet in the midst of profound struggle, I have no answers. Just questions. Are you over there? That's where Job is. That's where members of our church are. And that's where members of our church will enter. If they're not there right now. So what do we learn from this? That's Job's lament. What do we learn from it? Four lessons to learn from Job's lament. And I'm going to weave these four lessons. If you're taking notes, that's what I want you to do. It's four lessons. I'm going to weave these four lessons with answering a question, a theological question. And here's the theological question. Did Job sin in this chapter? Did Job sin? Sin against God. Did he dishonor God? Did he displease God? Did he sin against God in this chapter? How many of you, I'm going to have you guess now. I want everyone to raise your hand. Think about it for a second. Okay, I want you to, we're going to do a show of hands here. How many of you say, yes, Job sinned? All right, how many of you say, no, Job did not sin? like the minority here. Oh, some of you raise your hands for both. No? Let's try that one more time, okay? If you haven't staked your flag, go ahead and stake it. I'm not going to remember it. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything. How many of you say, yes, Job sinned? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you say, Job did not sin? Raise your hand. Oh, man. It's, okay. The yeses have it. We're a Baptist church, so the yeses win. I'm just kidding. Um, that's, not how, that's not how you do theology. That is how you do church decisions, though, congregationalism. But not... not, not um, not theology. So did Job sin? Well, he might have. Let me tell you why he might have sinned. I'll tell you why he might have sinned and why he might not have. Okay, so my answer basically is, 
You guys are not going to like my answer. <laughs> my answer is I don't know. <laughs> no, hold on. I'm going to give you a little bit more than that. Okay, hold on. I'm going to give you more than that. But my answer is, I mean, I'm going to tell you why it's right to say I don't know. But um, let me tell you why he might have sinned, and then I'll give you more reasons why he might not have sinned. I lean towards no. And then why it really doesn't matter. I actually think when you try to answer that question with a solid answer, you actually are going down the wrong path anyways. Okay? So I'll, I'll reel it in and show you why. But here's why he might have sinned. And he might have. Um, he spoke too quickly. You, you remember Proverbs 13.3? It says, anyone who guards his words protects his life. Anyone who talks too much is ruined. Or Proverbs 10.19 says, when there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But the one who controls his lips is wise. You just keep speaking, speaking rashly, speaking thoughtlessly. Just whatever comes in here comes out there and you kind of brag about not having a filter. Just I'm being real. Well, yeah, that's foolish. You're going to sin doing that. At times you will. So that, that maybe, maybe that's it. He, he spoke too quickly. But I hesitate to say that because he did wait how many days? I mean, he did wait seven days. It's not too quickly. You know, seven days, actually, that's a long time of silence. That's longer than everyone I know who have suffered, right? Um, so maybe not speaking too quickly, but what about complaining? Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling or complaining. This certainly sounds like a complaint. I wish I was never born. I wish I died when I was born. I wish my mom didn't feed me. I wish I was dead right now. I wish everyone who wanted to be dead could be dead right now. That sounds like complaining, right? Sounds like grumbling a little bit, murmuring. So maybe that's the sin, Philippians 2.14. Maybe the sin is that he's ungrateful. First Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Job, are you thankful? In everything. That's a command from the Bible. In everything give thanks. Not in some things. Not in most things. In everything. Job, are you... Ungrateful? Are you guilty of the sin of ingratitude? Maybe it's the sin of not rejoicing. Consider a great joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various trials, because the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. How, how often should you rejoice in the Lord? Always. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Sounds like Job's sin. He's not delighting. He's not rejoicing in the Lord. He's not rejoicing in his trial. He's not giving thanks. He seems to be complaining. Oh, it sounds like he's sinning. That's why he might have sinned. Now, why might have he not sinned? I'll give you... How many reasons do I have here? One, two, three. I've got three reasons here with my four lessons. So here's three reasons why he might not have sinned. And I don't want you to focus on that so much as the lessons that I'm going to pull out of it. But let me give you three reasons why he might not have sinned. Number one... He did not curse who? God. He didn't curse God, okay? In chapter 1 and chapter 2, the deal is, at least the sin that's on the line, the, the bet between God and Satan, so to speak, is Job will curse you if you take away his health and wealth and family and friends. And the answer is no, he did not curse God. So at least in that regard, the main debate, Job is not sinning. Now, that doesn't mean he can't sin in other ways. The sins I mentioned earlier are not those sins, but we've got to say that at the front. Job did not curse God. And so here's a lesson for us. When you're in suffering, don't curse God. Fairly obvious, but it has to be said. Obvious application is usually the right one. 
Don't curse God when you're in your season of suffering. What does it mean, what does it mean to curse God? To call God out directly. To renounce your faith in Jesus. To renounce your faith in his word. Or to ascribe to God a characteristic that's not his. God, you're evil. God, you do not love. God, you are wicked. That would be equivalent to cursing God. Or God, this is actually what happens a lot, you don't exist. Because if you did exist, this wouldn't be happening. That would be another form of cursing God, renouncing God. Satan thought that Job would curse God. He did not, and neither should you. Here's why you shouldn't. Another reason, 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13 says, If we deny him, he will also what? Deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful to deny us, for he cannot deny himself. If you deny God, if you curse God, if you reject God, if you give up on God, you have no other hope. God is the only hope in this world. Healthy or unhealthy, young or old, in suffering or not in suffering. With the test of adversity like Job or the test of prosperity like those who are healthy right now. God is your only hope. And so if you reject God, you reject hope. That's the first reason why I think Job did not sin is because he did not curse God. Second reason why I think he might not have sinned, again, I should pose it that way, is because he's in a season of sharp grief. So you need to cut a little bit of slack here. A little bit. He's in a moment, he's in a season of sharp grief. And so the lesson here is that when we're suffering, we need to pray and speak, here's the key word, honestly. Pray honestly to God. If you feel like you, you want to die, tell God. When you're hanging out with your church family and, or people who are comforting you and you're thinking those thoughts, it's okay to speak honestly. To a certain extent. Now, obviously, you could sit in speaking honestly. If you're like slandering people or lying, you're really believing a lie or you're gossiping. Those are not what I'm talking about. Like, so the, hey, I'm just being real. I'm just saying it like it is. I'm not, that's not an excuse to sin. But my point here is, you could say that to God. You could say anything you want to God because God already knows what you're thinking. But with, with, with other people, you got to be careful. You still need to speak honestly, but you also have to be careful not to sin in terms of slander or gossip or things like that. But here's my point here is that, Yes, you should think before you speak, and yes, you should take every thought captive to Christ. But if you're thinking something negative and depressing, God already knows it. So you might as well say it. Confess it, right? You might as well say it. You might as well not be in denial about it. And not only to God, who already knows, but I would say even with Christians around you who love you and care for you, care for you, you might as well say it. Why? The brothers and sisters who love you and are informed by the Bible, will be there for you. When we look at our church covenant, and we look at the promises we've made to each other as a church family, that we will bear each other's burdens, and we will not leave each other. We will be committed to each other. We are committed to help each other in pain. And so therefore, be honest. Let them know your burdens. Let them know your weaknesses. Let them know the sinful thoughts in your mind that you're struggling with. That you're tempted to think. The last thing you need to do when you're suffering is perform for people around you. You need help. Not a, not a pat on the back or an applause from people for saying how spiritual you are. 
And so be honest and speak honestly. And I would say this to our church family. Here's an application to our church. As, our, as we continue to grow as a church and, and grow in godliness in our church culture. In our church family, we need to share our burdens and prayer requests with other church members who are covenanted and committed to us. In a healthy church, the church should be the safest place for you to confess your burdens and even your sins. Right? James 5.16 says what? Confess your sins to who? One another. James 1, 1 John 1.9 is confess your sins to God, but James 5.16 is confess your sins to one another. I'm not confessing my sins to people who aren't loving me and caring for me, right? But when I know that my church family loves me, when I know that they want what's best for me, when I know that they want to get rid of the sin in my life that is the cancer in my life, killing me, I can confess my weaknesses to you. Amen. And I can confess them to you because I don't need to impress anybody. God is gracious. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. But I do need help if I do need help. And I'm going to confess the sin, confess the weakness, confess the temptation. That needs to grow in our church family, in our church culture. If not, you drift, will drift into being a church culture of performance and pretension. And that is not helpful or healthy. That is stuffy Amen. and grace-killing. Amen. So, Job was honest here. I want to die. I want to die. But he wasn't just, again, he wasn't suggesting suicide, but he was honest about it. So speak honestly. Now, if you have thoughts of suicide, and brothers and sisters in this church, you need to be aware that it's, you shouldn't be surprised that Christians have depression and, and suicidal thoughts. That shouldn't be a surprise to any Christian. After hearing this sermon, you should not be surprised anymore. Shame on you if you're surprised after this sermon. If you hear another church member tell you that, and you get shocked. You ought not to be shocked. Job 3 tells us not to be shocked. So if you have thoughts of suicide, please talk about it with me or one of the church members that you trust. And let them have the license to get help for you. Don't make them promise to keep it for themselves. Because that doesn't serve you. Don't tell them and try to control it. Give up control and let people help you. Let them walk alongside you. They don't have all the answers, but isolating yourself and isolating your thoughts does not move you to God. It does not move you to hope. It does not move you to freedom. God is moving towards you with the words I'm speaking right now. He's calling you in love to receive his help and grace in the trials you're facing through his people. We don't have all the answers, but we trust the Lord and we'll walk with you. Please do not isolate yourself and stop pretending. Doesn't help you, doesn't help anyone here. So that's number two. Second reason why I say Job wasn't saying is in a season of sharp grief, you have to have space to vent. You got to be careful. You can curse God, and venting and cursing God is still a sin, right? But you have to have a little bit of release. Now, if you settle on these thoughts, if Job settles on these thoughts of wanting to die long term, then it could be sinful. But to have the thoughts initially, you know a temptation and a sin is not the same thing, right? You could be tempted to sin and not sin. Do you know that? You could have a thought, tempt your mind, and then you say no. But the moment you start saying yes or you give in, you let that... Like Martin Luther said, you can keep a lustful thought. When he talks about fighting sexual lust, he says, you can, um, you can shoo a bird off of your head. But if it builds a nest there, it's your fault. Something along that line. 
You know, like, so a bird comes, thought comes, you, you get, get off me. It's okay, but the bird starts building a nest, you got no one to blame but yourself, right? And that, that, that's what we're talking about here. With, with sinful thoughts, a, a sinful thought crosses your mind. Where'd that come from? It could be demonic. It could be just from your own flesh. It could be from the world. And then you get rid of it. So, but, but letting members of our church, letting each other when we're grieving, have space to say it. This is where I'm tempted. This is what I'm thinking. And for you not to be like, in everything, give thanks. I got a word for you, brother. Rejoice in the Lord always, right now. What are you doing, Job? Okay, so, so give space. Now, here's the third reason why. And why I think he didn't sin, but I'm not sure. He might not have sinned. We can't read his heart. Why he might not have sinned and why we should not, why we should suspend judgment. Reason number three is to curse and detest God's sovereign will. Okay, this is a, this is going to be a, here's, we're going to do some theology work here for the last five or so minutes. To curse and detest God's sovereign will in the small moment isn't necessarily a sin and it can actually be righteous. Do you remember we talked last week about does God design or ordain evil? We talked about the mosaic, the small, you know what a mosaic is, right? It's a big picture made up of small little what? Tiles, right? And so the tiles are little. So in a small tile, it can be evil and it can be tragic and God could hate the tile. But in the big picture of things, it adds to the color of the great picture. And in God's big picture, every tile feeds into glorifying God and satisfying the souls of his people. Amen. Everything, every single tile, every single moment of every single day is feeding into this grand picture of the glory of God in the satisfaction of his saints. That's what it is, okay? So if that's true, and it is, that's, so that's God's sovereign plan, the big plan of the big picture of everything that's going on. But does God hate sin? Yes. Does God, is God against sin? Yes. His moral will, his command, you shall not kill, you shall not murder, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet your neighbor's horse or donkey or house or land. Those are all his commands. That's his moral will. Can you break those commands in your life? Yes. You can break God's moral will. Can you ever break God's sovereign will, his, his, his big plan? No, you can't. His plan is going to happen. The people who flew the planes into the, the Twin Towers in 9-11, they broke God's moral will. You shall not kill. You shall not murder. They murdered thousands. They broke God's moral will. Did they break God's sovereign will? No. It was under God's control and plan. Now, here's my point. We have not only the space, but sometimes it's righteous to curse the, the little mosaic tile of the moment because it's evil. In and of itself, right? Job's servants were slaughtered. That's murder. Is Job right to detest that? Is he right to denounce it? Yes. Right? Shouldn't we grieve over murders that are happening and crimes that happen? Shouldn't we detest and denounce it and in a sense curse it? Cursed be, you know, uh, cursed be those actions and cursed be that activity. Now that's cursing God's sovereign plan. In a sense, because God planned it, but God hates it in his moral will. Even God was sorry when he made man on earth, Genesis 6. That's why he sent the flood, right? Not only do you have that, God can be angry that Joseph's brother sold him into slavery because selling your brother into slavery is a sin, 
And he hates that little tile. But in the bigger plan of Joseph going to Egypt, becoming the second in command and saving his family so that the messianic line would come and Israel would be saved so that Jesus could come. God likes that, right? Thumbs up to that. So you could hate the selling of the, of the brother into slavery and still love how it fits into the overall plan. We talked about that last week. What about Jesus? So I said, like Job, he, he could grieve over his children dying. Not only is his servants getting murdered, what about his children dying? What is the last enemy, according to the New Testament? Death, right? Death is the last enemy. Should we hate death? Yes. Yes. Death is not natural. You say, well, everyone dies. Well, it's actually, it was imposed on us after Adam and Eve ate the fruit. That wasn't how it's supposed to be. And it's not how it's going to be in the end. Death is an enemy. We should hate death. So for Job to grieve and even detest death, the death of his children, the murder of his servants, that's not only necessarily wrong. Say, well, you're questioning God's sovereign plan. Me hating 9-11 is not me questioning God's sovereign plan. It's just hating the sin and the crime and the, and the, the, the pain that it brought into this world. And didn't Jesus do that? But he didn't detest or curse, but didn't Jesus denounce or didn't, didn't Jesus at least detest the cross. Then he grieved to the point where he wouldn't ask just once, not twice, but three times, let this cup what? Be passed from me. And these weren't passive prayers. God, please let this cup be passed from me. This is pleading. Plead, with, with all of his passion, please let this cup be passed from me, God. Please. Peter, wake up. John, James, wake up. Pray with me, please. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. I don't want it. I don't want it. They're going to murder me. I don't want it. Now, did Jesus sin? No. Can you detest part of God's sovereign plan? In a sense, at least in the moment, because of the moral will being broken and the glory of God being belittled and the pain it causes? Yes. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Now, I said Job is one of the darkest chapters, but the darkest moment in human history was the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays and the three hours of darkness on the cross when Jesus hung. So the two darkest moments a human has ever experienced. And it wasn't Job. It wasn't us. It was Jesus. He died bearing God's wrath on the cross for us. And we would not dare accuse Jesus of sin. Would you just say to Jesus while he's praying in the garden, Jesus, I have a verse for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything give thanks. So here's Jesus waking up, Peter and John. I prayed once. Pray with me. So Peter, you know, groggily comes, wipes the eye boogers out of his eyes and gets there. And he's like praying with Jesus. Okay, yeah, let's pray. Okay. Wait, what? You want the cup to be passed from you? What? Is that what God wants for you? Jesus, I got a verse for you. First Thessalonians, you got to pray according to God's will, brother. First Thessalonians 5.18, you, you better give thanks right now for the cross. Give thanks for the cup, Jesus, right now. I mean, is that what... Peter should do? Is that what we should do when we're comforting each other when they're in grief? Just start quoting verses at them while they're in the midst of sharp pain? No. No, we shouldn't do that. Jesus was not sinning when he vigorously, passionately, and desperately went to God again and again and again for the cup to be passed from him. Now, why did Jesus not sin? Because he said at the end of it, nevertheless, not my will, but what? But your will be done. So we can lament the isolated episode of God's sovereign will. 
while still giving thanks to God for the big picture. And it's okay to not be brimming with thanksgiving while you're in the grief of the moment. It's okay to denounce sin. It's okay to denounce brokenness. It's okay to mourn over death and denounce death. It's okay to grieve. And it's okay to speak of your grief out loud to God and to others. It's okay as long as you obey lesson number four. Because that's lesson number three. Lesson number three is denounce, and, denounce sin and brokenness. So lesson one, just to recap here, four lessons is don't curse God. Lesson two, pray and speak honestly. Lesson three, denounce sin and brokenness. But you have to do lesson three with lesson four together. Lesson four is lament with Bible-informed trust. Lament with Bible-informed trust. I want you to have a soul disposition of trust even when you're crying your tears out. You're crying your eyes out. What do I mean by this? Pray openly and honestly. Denounce sin. Curse the day of your birth even. But do it with an open hand. Let this cup be passed away. But pray with an open hand. Let, not, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So pray with an open hand. Don't hold your desire too tightly. Pray with a submissive heart. I prefer God's sovereign will to be done, not my will, but thine be done. This is a disposition of trust in the big picture. Because when the Bible tells us that God is good and that God is wise and that God is in control, I can trust him in my suffering, even though I'm crying my eyes out. I can denounce and curse things, curse the day of my birth with an open hand saying, nevertheless, I trust you. I trust you. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why I'm feeling this way. I don't know why this darkness is in my life, but I trust you. You're in what, what, do we, what do we learn from the Bible? That God's in complete control, that he's wise, and that he's good. How do we know that God is good? Well, the book of Job, when it gets to the end, teaches us God is good. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then we read, why do we know that God will be good to us, though? Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You could say, well, God, it doesn't feel like you're for me because I'm suffering. I I miss my kids. It doesn't feel like you're for me right now. But what does Romans 8.32 say? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know that God is good to us? Not because our kids rise from the dead when we're mourning them, but because God's son died on the cross for us. Amen. That's why we give thanks. That's why we know God is good. Doesn't mean we have to be overflowing with gratitude and joy and being peppy in the moment. But we know God did not spare his own son. If he didn't spare his own son, why would he not give me everything else I need? So Christian, rest in the cross in your season of suffering. Church family, let's keep looking to the cross. Let's keep pointing each other to the cross. Non-Christian, if you're not a Christian here, I want to say very clearly, there is no ultimate hope for you in your suffering. And there's no meaning in your suffering if you don't have Jesus, if you don't trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. See, the problem is that if you're not a Christian, here's the best news. If if this is all over your head, just listen for the next 30 seconds. God made you and you are accountable to him. He made us all. But we sinned and rebelled against God. So we deserve God's judgment penalty and wrath for our sin. We deserve to be condemned. Yet God sent Jesus into the world, his son. He sent his son into the world. He lived the life we should have lived, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and condemned, when he was on the cross, he condemned him so he wouldn't have to condemn you. He 
Jesus died so you wouldn't have to die the second death in hell forever. If, if you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So God is opening his hands to you and saying, come and have eternal life. Come and have forgiveness. Come and have grace. Come and have hope. Come and have my Holy Spirit live in you to begin to transform you. Repent from your righteousness, your religion, and your sin. Turn away from all of that and trust Jesus alone. Entrust yourself to Jesus alone and you will be saved. I invite you to do that. So, to close, if we can't be sure that Job sinned, so did Job sin, yes or no? Answer is, I don't know. Answer is, I don't know, and I, I, I lean towards no, And here, but here's what I would say, is that you shouldn't be so sure, especially if you're saying yes, as some are saying out loud. Here's why. No. Here's why you shouldn't say yes right then. If we can't be sure Job sinned, and I don't think you could read his heart, what should we think? I say, let's not be so sure, lest we fall into the trap that the friends fell into. That's the trap of the friends. That was their problem. They were so sure. And when you're so sure, you become a miserable comforter. The point is, it's not up to you. When it's a questionable thing about sin, don't confront. You don't know. There's enough clear sins to confront in people's lives, right? When, when, it's, when it's a questionable one, let it go. Because there's enough clear ones. And secondly, we don't know. And, and we don't want to be the ones to be saying, I can read people's hearts. And I know you're sinning in your heart. It's better to just say, I don't know, but I'm here for you as you're suffering. If we think, if we think this without knowing for sure, we can really help someone in their season of grief. Because we don't have a lot of answers. We just sit there with questions with them. And that's what we need to be doing. And we'll talk about this next week. Give each other space. Don't jump to conclusions. Just be there for them. Answer their questions. But for now, let's close with these four. Let me just close with it. I'll quote a song, but let me repeat the four lessons. Go to God without cursing him. Secondly, pray honestly and speak honestly to others. Third, denounce sin and brokenness in this world. And fourth, have a Bible-informed trust in your season of pain, grief, and cries of desperation. Listen to this song that we sing sometimes. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Father, we pray that you would help us to hide these words in our heart that we would not sin against you. We confess too often we don't lament with trust. We lament with pride and arrogance and hard-heartedness. We don't just let a bird cross and visit. We let them build a nest on our head. And 
we confess that we have sinned against you. We pray that you'd forgive us. We pray that you would help us to be a church, Lord. I already, we already see it happening in our church. It's been happening before. It's been happening for, since 1949. And we see that you're still working in our church now. Continue to transform us to be a church that sympathizes with each other in suffering. That has a Bible-informed way of comforting each other. And may we keep going to you in faith. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death. And thank you for his resurrection. And thank you for his coming his second coming. We pray that he would come soon. And so we pray with all the saints around the world, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.